This week's TribCast is sponsored by Lone Star College. Leads the way in helping Texas get back to work by training tomorrow's workforce today. Learn more at lonestar.edu. And the Lowy Law Firm is an Austin personal injury firm dedicated to helping injured Texans and committed to giving back to the community. More at lowylawfirm.com. Welcome to the November 18th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. I'm Emma Platoff, filling in as your host. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Healthcare reporter Edgar Walters. Hey there. And politics reporter Patrick Spitek. Hey there. So I want to start this week by talking about COVID-19. This is one of the deadliest points yet in the country, and it's only likely to get worse as winter sets in. Yesterday, more than 150,000 new cases were reported nationally, and Texas also hit a record Tuesday with nearly 11,000 new cases. Edgar, can you just give us the top lines? How bad does COVID-19 look in Texas right now? It looks really bad, and I don't think there's any other way to put it. Um, As a nation, you know, we're in our worst place yet uh, in terms of new cases and hospitals being overrun. Um, In Texas as a whole, um, we're not quite at the level that we were this summer in terms of aggregate numbers of hospitalizations across the state. Um, But, I mean, Texas is a huge place, obviously, and um, all it takes is a little bit of zooming in to to see just how bad things are. So, you know, El Paso has emerged as potentially the hotspot of the U.S. It's it's a real tragedy, um, what's going on there. And their hospitals are spread and are stretched incredibly thin. Um, and then, of course, you know, other parts of the state that have been sounding the alarm for weeks, are, you know, continue to struggle. So the Lubbock, Lubbock area, Amarillo area, all of the kind of surrounding um, rural communities that may have hospitals, but, you know, they're not hospitals that are equipped to perform things like surgeries. And, uh, you know, as a result, they rely on the bigger you know, the El Pasos and the Lubbocks to take care of their patients. So more people are getting sick. Hospitals are still full. Um, and public health officials are bracing for, you know, potentially the, you know, the winter could bring the worst and is yet to come. Yeah, obviously, one of the things on a lot of our radars is the Thanksgiving holiday next week. Um, We know that earlier this year, you know, 4th of July, Memorial Day, these big holidays when families were gathering in in larger small groups have really contributed to spikes. What are we hearing from public health officials about sort of what's the the best case scenario for Thanksgiving this year? What what are they hoping folks will do? Well, I mean, the advice continues to, to be what it has been, which is to avoid, you know, gatherings, you know, stick within, you know, the people who are in your bubble, but, you know, don't go see others. I mean, frankly, um, I think the message from public health officials is um, if you don't need to travel for Thanksgiving, don't do it. Um, You know, continue to wear masks. Uh, You know, I've seen some uh, folks talk about the idea of if you if you are going to do a gathering, uh, you know, do it outdoors. You know, it is Texas and it's getting colder, but it's a Texas uh, fall. Right. So, there's still the potential of some outdoor um, meals or something. 
Um, but but kind of like we saw in you know in the summer when there was the sort of spike after I think it was Memorial Day, and to some extent we saw that after the Fourth of July as well. Um, I think public health officials are really bracing for the possibility that I mean the numbers look bad today, uh, which is really a reflection of where the virus was you know two to three weeks ago, and I think there's worries that. Um, Thanksgiving could be kind of a, you know, a series of many, many um, kind of large spreader events, which is just exactly not the direction that we need to be going in. Yeah, Edgar mentioned some of the hotspots. I think Lubbock just today is starting to hit hospital capacity. Um, In El Paso, the situation is so dire that they have inmates tapped to staff makeshift morgues. Um, the county judge there has been pushing for more restrictions on business openings, but facing pushback from state leaders. Another uh, sort of messaging struggle that hasn't really changed over this many months. Um, Patrick, what are we hearing or not hearing from state officials with this latest surge? Sure. When it comes to Governor Abbott, for example, he seems to be keeping a lower profile amid this spike than he did ahead of the last major spike we had earlier this summer. Um, He hasn't been silent on it. He's done a number of media appearances where he's addressed these rising numbers. um, And we just learned that he is heading to uh, Lubbock on Thursday to promote uh, one of the new uh, COVID antibody drugs that Texas is starting to distribute. Um, But he's no doubt not been as vocal about this. And in the media appearances that he has had addressing the rising uh, case numbers, he's really stuck to two points. Um, He has basically said that Texas already has a strategy in place to deal with these rising numbers. And he's referring to this, um, you know, approach that he announced uh, almost uh, two months ago now in mid-September, where, you know, you break down the state by hospital region and any hospital region that sees its, um, you know, number of COVID patients exceed 15% of total hospital capacity, uh, they have to begin to claw back some of their reopenings. Most businesses have to go from 75% back to 50% capacity, for example. Um, and so he has really pointed, you know, pointed to that as a strategy that the state already has in place um, that in his, in his view is, is adequate for now. Um, and number two, he's also, uh, you know, pointed out and, and really heavily promoted the arrival of these new COVID treatments. And um, like a lot of officials has expressed uh, optimism and hope that a, a vaccine is very near. Um, obviously, um, you know, both with the, the treatments and then eventually when the vaccines arrive, they're not going to be immediately widely available. And so I think that's obviously important context. They're going to be prioritized for the most vulnerable and, and people on the on the front lines of this pandemic. Um, and so, you you know, you talk to public health experts and they obviously emphasize that and they say that, you know, while it's important to, um, you know, keep a positive attitude about these kinds of things, we need to be realistic and understand that, um, you know, some, you know, wide availability to the public um, may still not be, you know, for months away. And so those are the two points that Abbott's really been stressing, I think. Ross, what do you make of the messaging on this? I mean, I've been really struck in particular, we've been discussing El Paso as such a major hotspot, uh, your hometown. The county judge there has been pushing for more restrictions and, and facing pushback from state officials, including Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who's sort of brought brought the issue to court, you know, saying that the business closures they're hoping that local officials are hoping to put in place in El Paso 
you know, go too far based on what the governor has said on this issue. I think Paxton even described the county judge there uh, as a tyrant. How does this sound to you, Ross? Is this just kind of deja vu all over again? Well, yeah, I think they're trying to balance a couple of things that, you know, put them in an unenviable political position no matter what they do. In El Paso, Ken Paxton is essentially arguing for the disease and saying we should let this run rather than restrict behavior and you're a tyrant if you do otherwise. That puts him in a position, you know, I don't think it's probably where he wants to be, but it puts him in a position of being the guy who is somewhat responsible for the danger that people are in and leaving them in that danger. Um, you know, there was a, along the way, we've changed policies and changed tax so many times that you almost have a catalog now of the things that can be done and to some extent a measure of whether they worked. And at one point, the strategy here was let the locals decide to some extent because you can't really have a statewide strategy that works. It makes sense right now in El Paso to really lean into masks and social distancing and staying at home in a way that it might not make sense in another place in another part of Texas. You know, um, there are all kinds of different circumstances. So you can make an argument that the governor, you know, probably isn't going to be in a position to do a statewide order on anything. Um, but, you know, given that there are local problems in El Paso and Lubbock and Amarillo and some other places, um, you know, not giving the locals some room to work um, basically means that the state officials are assuming responsibility for whatever problems result. Edgar, what do you think uh, public health officials make of this strategy? You know, the governor has started this new approach where, you know, we're considering business reopenings based on the hospital capacity in a particular region of the state. Is that an approach that, that folks in the public health atmosphere think is working well? Um, well, I don't think anybody in the public health world thinks that the anywhere in the U.S., including Texas, is really a model for anything working well right now. Um, I had an interesting conversation with uh, Peter Hotez this week, um, who, who put it in what I thought were pretty convincing terms, um, which is that with this promising news coming out of, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies about the potential for a vaccine, we sort of have a, a bookend, um, or at least an optimistic bookend here to um, the pandemic, or at least, you know, kind of like we have our most tangible exit strategy yet. And, um, Dr. Hotez is why, you know, he was careful not to criticize, you know, the governor in particular or, or any kind of particular local or state official. He kind of said every death between now and February is, of, is a public policy failure and is a failure of um, political leadership at the local, state, and federal level. And, you know, part of part of what makes this hard as a policymaker is that, um, you know, public health, any public health challenge depends on um, people behaving and following the rules and, uh, you know, kind of operating uh, sort of out of a sense of, you know, doing their part for people who are, you know, not just, not just themselves, but for their family and their friends and, and, and their uh, fellow citizens. And um, right now we, we're just at this point where even basic sort of um, health measures, mask wearing, you know, have, have become so politicized that there's this sort of 
resistance. So, so I think um, the, the message that the public health officials have given me most, you know, in the last week or so, looking ahead to a vaccine is just this feeling that the communication at all levels of government needs to be strong and needs to be forceful, which is that there is an end to this crisis in sight, but the need to do all of the same things continues. We, you know, you need to wear a mask. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are, but you know, you need to sort of follow the basic rules. Um, and I feel like, uh, the, the subtext of those conversations, they don't feel like they're getting those strong messages from government leaders um, at the moment. And they would like more of that because I think, you know, that's one way that you could potentially have more public buy into these, you know, pretty standard public health strategies. You mentioned um, a bright spot in this, a potential bookend. Can you talk about the news we've gotten from several pharmaceutical companies over the last couple of weeks with promising early results in vaccine trials and a guesstimate? Uh, I'll ask you to to take a guess at read the tea leaves about what that might mean um, as far as a timeline for distribution here in Texas. You know, as Patrick mentioned, this is not something where vaccine doses are going to be available to everyone the first day it's approved. But what do we know so far about the state's plans for distribution? You know, who comes first in line? Those kinds of questions. Sure. So there's a conceivable universe uh, in which um, we have one or two um, vaccines approved for emergency use by the federal government um, within, you know, before the end of the year. So within about a month. Um, Pfizer and Moderna have said that they have the capability of manufacturing about 20, uh, enough vaccine to give about 20 million people um, their shots by the end of the year. And, you know, that's that's less than 10% of the U.S. population. So obviously that's, you know, supply is tight. Um, but, you know, in, in the conversations that I've had with experts, you know, a few weeks ago, everybody was saying, if you're just, you know, an average Joe, somebody who's working from home um, during this pandemic, you shouldn't expect to be vaccinated um, before, if you want to, before um, the third quarter of next year. Um, with the recent news coming from, uh, you know, showing that um, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, at least initially, seem to be very effective um, and have minimal side effects, uh, now some of those experts are bumping up those expectations. They're saying maybe second quarter. Um, so, you know, there's there there is a possibility that you know folks like you and me might be able to get a vaccine maybe March or April. Of course, that's just speculation. It's it's too early to say. Um, but uh, yeah, the the vaccines it's it's the most promising news that we've had in uh, in the public health field in easily a year. Well, we'll take any good news as we can get it, uh, especially on this topic. Um, just really quickly before we go to a message thanking our sponsors, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of distributing a vaccine in a state uh, as large and as diverse as Texas, where, you know, we know that a lot of people don't live very close to uh, large healthcare infrastructure, for example? Yeah, I mean, the, the two big challenges, well, really, there are three big challenges. First, um, we, we don't know exactly yet what the vaccine, what vaccines are going to become available first, but this Pfizer vaccine, for example, requires, you know, has to be stored at very, very cold temperatures. And, you know, your clinic in Falfurrias, Texas, uh, you know, probably doesn't have an ultra cold freezer 
where they can you know store something at negative 70 Celsius. Um, now, with the Moderna announcement, you know, they came out and said that, that it looks like their vaccine product can, um, you know, survive basically in a refrigerator for 30 days. So maybe um, those logistical challenges may improve over, you know, the next few weeks. Um, as, as we learn more from U.S. health officials, you know, we'll be able to say more clearly. The, the, the real other big challenge is that there are so many people in Texas who are uninsured or you know, impoverished. They don't have, um, you know, a doctor that they see frequently. Um, they may not have gone to the doctor in the last however many years. Um, and these, the vaccines that we're talking about right now are two dose um, vaccines. So it's not just a question of finding these people, um, getting them to turn out at a clinic or at a hospital or at a public health office. Um, it's then getting them, being able to keep track of them and have them come back in three weeks or four weeks and get their second shot. Um, it's going to be a Herculean task for public health officials. So far, you know, the state Department of State Health Services, you know, they're expressing confidence that they'll be able to get it done. Um, but I think any provider on the ground will tell you it's this is going to be the largest sort of public health feat of, uh, of you know, my memory, at least. Some of us have All polio right. shots. <laughs> <laughs> a little, a uh, slightly longer memory from Mr. Ramsey. Um, all right. Well, before our next topic, we've got two sponsors to go to. The Texas State University System is Texas's first university system with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. More at tsus.edu. And... Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers strives for Texans to have timely access to high-quality emergency care and champions fair regulation in the industry. More at TAFEC.org. We got some updates this week in the latest scandal encircling Ken Paxton. Um, earlier this fall, eight top aides told law enforcement they believed Paxton had broken the law in using the agency to serve the interests of a political donor Nate Paul, a, a real estate investor here in Austin. Now, four of those whistleblowers have been fired. Three have resigned. One has been put on leave. And last week, we saw a number of them file suit against the agency in Travis County District Court. As if that were not enough news, earlier this week, the Associated Press confirmed what many had suspected, that the FBI is indeed investigating the allegations these whistleblowers made and are, are looking into whether Paxton may have violated the law. Um, Ross, how is this looking for our attorney general right now? Uh, pretty dire, actually. He's got, you know, a serious civil action coming against him in the whistleblower lawsuit. He's got um, the FBI investigating him. Uh, there's been some indication that is not verified that they also, uh, that those aides who left also reported this to the Department of Public Safety. So there's possibly a state investigation here. Um we're still in the revelation stage. We still don't have all of the information we need to figure out or that the authorities need to figure out whether Ken Paxton did something wrong and exactly what it was. What we do know is that a donor who gave him $25,000 for his political campaign, which in the scheme of things in Texas is not a huge contribution for a statewide official, um, has been uh, uh, the object of particular favor from the office. Paxton himself has intervened in some open records requests and some other legal matters. At one point, employed a special prosecutor that issued subpoenas on behalf of, you know, just try to find 
um, some information about this uh, legal action that this developer was pursuing. Um, it's a it's a big mess, and everything is a new revelation. And so far, the re revelation been negative for the attorney general. And um, you know, I think as we go into a legislative session, and particularly as we go into a legislative session where one of the central issues is redistricting, and one of the central figures in any redistricting formulation and court battle is an attorney general. We've got a lot of a lot of roads coming to the same intersection at the same time. You know, it's, it's a big mess, but it's interesting politically um, within his party. It doesn't seem to have, you know, metastasized beyond the initial reactions that we saw from, you know, the governor and lieutenant governor just saying that these allegations are concerning and that they warrant investigation. I haven't seen, you know, as it has grown uh, and we've learned more, and as Ross pointed out, we're going to learn more, um, haven't seen a lot of Republicans speaking out on this. It seems like as far as the political blast radius of this controversy right now, it seems seems pretty, pretty limited. I, I'd be curious to see again if as this goes on, if we see more members of his his party beginning to speak out, um, I know Emma, you follow this more closely than I have, but I just haven't seen that intra-party, um, you know, vocal reaction um, in a way that you would you would expect to see for someone with a serious political problem on their hands at this juncture. Yeah, the noise on the edges has been, you know, first of all, when um, Dan Patrick and Glenn Hager and um, Chip Roy, the lieutenant governor, the controller, right. and a congressman who used to be first assistant to Paxton. They parted ways a little bit uncomfortably several years ago. So there's some animosity there, I think. But um, all three of those, uh, as these first, uh, as this first started coming to light, all three of them dumped their um, contributions from Nate Paul, from this uh, developer. Before Paxton was named and after Nate Paul had been raided by the DPS and FBI, they were still holding all those contributions. So dumping the contributions clearly wasn't about something they thought of Nate Paul. It was something they thought about Paxton. Uh, they waited until Paxton was mentioned and then ditched those. And then, uh, Emma, you know this better than I do. A couple of uh, local officials up in Collin County have been critical. I think Jeff Leach has said some things. Yeah, Jeff Leach, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, um, sent a, a letter to the agency basically just asking, you know, his committee has some sort of oversight jurisdiction over that agency. And his question was basically, there's there's a lot in the news right now. Are you still able to do the job, you know, the important work of this agency? And the, the picture that came back was uh, a rosy one, a, a rosy one that some current and former employees dispute. But from Paxton himself, the, the message was very much you know, we're still on it, we're collecting child support, we're in court, we're defending the laws and, and projecting a lot of confidence. Um, I think Patrick makes a really interesting point. There hasn't been a ton of criticism from fellow Republicans. There also hasn't been a lot of support either. I, I, we haven't even heard, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, from his wife, uh, Angela Paxton, is a, a state senator uh, representing the North Texas area. Uh, Ross, you had an interesting column in the last week or so about impeachment proceedings at the Texas Capitol. Is that something we should be betting on uh, when when lawmakers come back in January? I, you know, I wouldn't bet on it. I'm just, you know, as you look at sort of the alternatives here, that's really what brought it up. And I was talking to somebody, you know, basically just chasing string about this. You know, what else have you heard? What else have you heard? Same kind of thing we're all doing, uh, talking to people on the phone. And a lawyer I was talking to said, you know, there's a weird thing in the Texas Constitution that if an officer 
is impeached, an officer here being an elected official, is impeached, that they're not in office while the impeachment is proceeding. That So if you were you know, an attorney general and the House voted to impeach you, that goes to the Senate for trial. And between the time that the House impeaches you and the time that the Senate renders a verdict, innocent or guilty, you're out of office. Um, and this lawyer was talking about it kind of in the context of redistricting and some other things that an AG would be involved in, uh, not necessarily speculating that the House or Senate would move on this. Um, I think all of that kind of stuff is premature until we know whether and what, you know, these investigations turn up. Yeah, as the political side has been kind of quiet, we know that the the potential legal and criminal uh, ramifications are moving and those are not things that move fast, right? So something we'll just have to, to stay tuned for. Um, from, from one Republican who's become somewhat of a controversial figure over the last few months to another. Patrick, you had a story this week about Alan West, the new chair of the state GOP, who has been one of the most vocal critics um, recently of his fellow Republicans, including at least one lawsuit against Governor Abbott and um, uh, some comments disparaging or, or sort of rejecting the election of the likely next speaker of the Texas House. Can you tell us a little bit more about who he is and how big a splash he's making? Right. So Alan West has been on the job um, since late July when he pretty resoundingly beat the incumbent, um, the incumbent chairman at the time, James Dickey, at the, the state party convention. Um, and he's really taken a, as we described in our story, sharp elbowed approach to this job. Um, you know, you alluded to some of this, but he um, joined a lawsuit that challenged the governor's extension of early voting in the November election due to the pandemic. He, pro he joined a protest outside the governor's mansion ahead of the election uh, that was related to some of the pandemic-related business closings in Texas, and most recently made headlines for calling the likely next Speaker of the House, Dave Phelan, a, a fellow Republican, a, quote, Republican political traitor, uh, all because Phelan you know, has been uh, courting Democratic support in his bid to become the next Speaker, in addition to um, majority Republican support. Um, and so Alan West has really uh, taken this job of Republican Party chairman and, uh, you know, wielded it very aggressively. Um, he has campaigned and, and helped other Republicans and has, you know, I, you know, has certainly spent time trying to fulfill the more traditional responsibilities of a state party chairman in terms of getting other Republicans elected. Uh, but the way in which he's used the job to try to hold other Republican officials accountable is certainly um, a pretty sharp departure from how it's been used in the past. Um, obviously, James Dickey, for example, his predecessor, voted to censure um, Speaker Joe Strauss, who was another fellow Republican a couple of years ago, and that was very notable at the time. Um, but the, you know, how much Alan West has done in this short time in the job um, to speak out against other Republicans, I think, is, is pretty um, unprecedented, at least when you look at the past few uh, people who've run, who have led the state Republican Party. Um, and this is all playing a part, playing out ahead of a legislative session where West. Uh, you know, intends to be very involved in pushing for the party's legislative priorities. There are eight of them. Some of them enjoy wide support among Republicans in the legislature, like banning taxpayer-funded uh, lobbying. Uh, some of them have a little more limited appeal, like constitutional carry or, or letting people carry uh, firearms without a permit. Um, and so the, a real big question, I think, heading into this session is, you know, how aggressive is West going to continue to be in his dealings with fellow Republicans, especially, 
fellow Republican or fellow Republicans who are state lawmakers. And are they going to listen? Is he going to have influence over them? Um, you know, some of them have said he, you know, he doesn't, you know, doesn't matter what he thinks about our session. We're going to do what's best for our district and we're going to do what's best for the conservative cause, regardless of Alan West thinks. Some of the more conservative members of the House, for example, who are a little more just overall politically aligned with West um, say that we do need to pay attention to what the grassroots is asking for us to focus on in the form of these legislative priorities. Um, and then looking beyond this legislative session, there is already been plenty of speculation that West could be a statewide candidate in 2022. Obviously he has been critical of the governor's coronavirus response and that has stoked speculation that he could be interested in challenging the governor in, in, in the primary in 2022. And West hasn't ruled that out. Um, and at the same time, Abbott's approach to West has basically been to ignore him. Um, he never congratulated West on winning the chairmanship back in uh, late July. Um, you know, there were a number of statewides who came out the time and did that. Um, he's, you know, generally defended his coronavirus response against West's criticism, but hasn't, you know, specifically personally pushed back on what West has said. Um, and so Abbott so far seems to be basically trying to uh, take the high road amid all of this. Um, and it'll be interesting to see um, how sustainable that approach is as West becomes more aggressive in this role, especially as we get into the legislative session. You know, it, it's kind of useful in some ways. I think for Dave Phelan, this is useful because he can he's got a guy barking at him from the right and he can go to the other Republicans and say, you know, um, I don't know what's wrong with this guy and go to the Democrats and say, see, there's a guy to my right. It could be worse. Um, I, you know, I think that somebody noisy outside on some level is useful. Uh, the last time that I'm aware that something like this happened was probably when Tom Pawkin was the chairman of the Texas Republican Party. George Bush was the governor and Kay Bailey Hutchison was the um, at that time, the junior U.S. senator. And the Republican Party uh, made a move to keep those two off the speaking podium at the Republican State Convention. So, you know, this isn't unprecedented, but, it, you know, um, uh, George Bush and Kay Bailey Hutchison made some use of it. And I suspect that Dade Phelan and um, Greg Abbott will probably try to do the same. There's that uh, long memory coming back to help us again. Um, Ross, we're coming off an election just a couple weeks ago that was a really pretty decisive victory for Republicans in Texas. You know, the, the question had been in Texas for a long time, the, the threat for Republicans was from their right, right? You know, did they have to worry about someone who is more conservative challenging them in a Republican primary? In recent years, the question has been, are they more at risk in a general election? You know, can, can Democrats really be competitive in the state? This year was a good year for Republicans. Looking at the election results from November 3rd and also the sort of posturing of Alan West, do you think that that calculus has changed at all? Is, is this telling us anything about where the Republican Party is in Texas? Or is this um, someone who's sort of just on the outside making a lot of noise? Uh, they had a bunch of decisive wins at the most critically bad time for Democrats. Uh, they won uh, they they cemented their majority in the House and the Senate. They still have all of the statewide seats. And we're going into a legislature that will draw redistricting maps that could institutionalize or cement those wins for the next 10 years. So so for the Republicans, this was a complete win. Uh, the Democrats have some things to, to brag about, I suppose. You know, they won seats in 2018 that they didn't expect to win. And they held all of those seats on November 3rd. So they didn't go backwards. Um, they expected to go much forwards, though. So, you know, I think 
you know, it's very difficult to read that as anything but a Republican win. I think what changed in the last few cycles wasn't that the Republicans were no longer in danger in their own primary. It's that they were also in danger in the general election. And I think that's going to continue to be true in some parts of the state. Um, one of the things that, you know, anybody drawing uh, redistricting maps is going to have to figure out, uh, and it's a, it's a difficult, you know, academic problem, is in a state changing this rapidly and in a state where demographics are changing this rapidly, not necessarily with respect for particular respect for the geography of politics. I mean, you draw districts, you know, sometime in 2021. And the question is, will those maps hold? Uh, the maps that were drawn in 2011 and, you know, amended through the courts and everything were beginning to erode pretty seriously. At one point, the Republicans had 102 of the seats in the Texas House. They were down to 70, uh, to rather, uh, to uh, 83 at one point, and were, you know, in some danger, it turned out not to be great, but in some danger of losing their majority. The maps change fast, the state's changing fast, and, you know, that's going to be the problem for them going forward. But I think, you know, I, I don't know how you read the November elections as uh, great news really on any front for the Democrats. It's going to be hard to sell their supporters. There's a lot of explaining to do before their supporters come back and before some of their best candidates say it's worth the risk running in 2022 or 2024. Got it. Um, well, that's all the time we have this week. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors, Lone Star College, Lowy Law Firm, the Texas State University System, and the Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers. On behalf of Ross, Edgar, Patrick, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Emma. Thanks for listening. <laughs>